when Jesus was sitting down to dinner with his disciples, when he was teaching them in the upper room, when he was explaining to them that the kingdom of God, what it was going to be like, and it was easy to see him in those moments as glorious, in an earthy, good teacher kind of way. When he raised Lazarus from the dead, when he was anointed by Mary with a costly ointment, costly perfume, when the crowds laid palm branches out for him, shouting blessings as he rode into Jerusalem on a colt, it was easy to see the glory of Jesus. When he took for himself the name I Am, and then he laid out those seven I Am statements that clearly identify Jesus as God and Messiah. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. It was easy when he was saying those things to see his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When we were reading those passages in our study of John's gospel, it was easy to see how this, this second half of, of the book of the gospel according to John, how this could be considered by many to be the, the book of the glory. Because Jesus is the great I am. Because Jesus is the Messiah. Because Jesus is the true King of Israel. Then we come to his arrest. And as we consider the work of Jesus Christ in this, the book of the glory, it would be easy to forget his glory because there's, there's nothing outwardly attractive uh, about John chapters 18 and 19. In fact, everything we read in these passages seem to be marked by humiliation, by scorn, shame, Mockery, denial, betrayal, and yet this is about the glory of God. This is about the glory of the Son of God. In fact, immediately after Judas left them and went to arrange his betrayal, Jesus had said, now is the Son of Man glorified and God glorified with him. And just before the soldiers arrived, just before they showed up and, and took him into custody, he had prayed this. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. If we look at these events here with human eyes, if we look at it through the eyes of the, of the haters of Christ... So if we look at these stories about what is happening to him here through the eyes of Pilate, through the eyes of the Romans, we will see no glory. But may God be pleased to open our eyes that we might see the glory of God in Jesus Christ, humiliated and even crucified. So this morning we're going to be looking at the end of chapter 18 and the first few verses of John chapter 19. It's not a very long section but it's very significant theologically, which means it's significant for your soul. And the significance is not found in anything that Jesus says. 
In fact, in these verses that we're going to look at this morning, like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth, Jesus says nothing in these verses. Instead, the significance of this is going to be seen in what Pilate says and in how both the Jews and the Gentiles respond to what they see. The significance is going to be seen in what is happening around and and to Jesus, and it has eternal consequences for the salvation of your soul. So John chapter 18, I want to pick it up in verse 37, and I'm going to read through verse 7 of chapter 19. So John 18, beginning in verse 37, Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. Let's just stop and pray again. Father, help us to see that there is no guilt in Jesus Christ except that which he takes upon himself from us. Help us to know and understand that his uh, guiltlessness, his righteousness is transferred to us who have trusted in him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So to our uh, probably mostly Gentile minds in here, we probably read differences or references, really, to the, to the Passover throughout this passage, or really throughout these several chapters here. We, we probably read them in the same way that we might read an article that refers to the 4th of July or Labor Day. So you might be reading a story and you come upon a holiday, and instinctively you associate that holiday with the time of year and whatever activity is associated with it. So you're reading along and the author speaks of Thanksgiving. You immediately think of late fall, turkey, the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, football. Some of you, not me usually, but you probably do. If it's Labor Day, which is next week, you think of the end of summer, cookouts, back to school, having Monday off, right? But when we read through the scriptures, especially in these passages, and we see these references to the Passover, we should not merely see them as time markers, not merely as letting us know what time of year these events happened. 
we should understand that there is more going on here. See, in the, in the fact of Jesus' arrest, arrest, the fact that it happens, the trials and the crucifixions are all taking place at the Passover is an important theological point. In fact, there is a, there is a fulfillment that is taking place. So the Apostle Paul will declare in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, he says this, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And it's this connection. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. It's this connection that helps us to understand both the work of, of Jesus and the meaning of the Old Testament Passover. And so we need to see that direct connection between these two events in the history of redemption. Sometimes when we read the Bible, we read it as a, as a collection of short stories, disjointed stories that, that teach us nice moral principles as opposed to one epic history of the outworking of God's plan of redemption for his people, which is how we ought to read Scripture. One epic history of the outworking of God's plan of redemption for his people. The link between the Jewish festival of the Passover, which as we talked about in Sunday school a little bit ago, was instituted by God himself back in Exodus chapter 12 as he delivered his people from their slavery in Egypt. The link between the Passover and these events here can be seen in couple of words, but probably the most important and most glaring word that we should know is the word atonement. That's the link here. Redemption. No matter what you or anyone else thinks, atonement, redemption, is why you're here today. Atonement is the paying of the penalty for your sin. Redemption, the freeing of you of your bondage to sin freeing to Christ. These things are what this is all about. Paul called it of first importance in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He said this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, Paul says. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Why? Why? Because the wages of sin is death. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He made an atonement for our sins, but not just an atonement, he made the atonement. Hebrews chapter 7 tells us that, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. He is our great high priest going before the Lord with offerings on our behalf. And he is also the sacrifice. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and of goats to take away sins, as Hebrews chapter 10 says. Therefore, through his sacrifice, we have been sanctified, made holy, made righteous through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. 
In the Old Testament, the Passover lamb was specifically to be without blemish. Without blemish. The people of Israel were clearly instructed not to offer blind animals. Not to offer the animals with a limp or or some other kind of blemish. They were to be without blemish. They were not to offer the runt of the litter, the, the one that had no value. They were not to offer the one that nobody else would buy, so I might as well give it to the church or to the temple. Rather, they were to bring the best. They were to offer the Lord something that would cost them. And as we can see from today's passage here, this concept of the sacrifice being without blemish is highlighted in Jesus' Roman trial. Now, some have said that maybe there's a connection between the three days that the lamb would spend living in the homes of the Israelite families. You can read about that in Exodus 12. Um, Maybe there's a connection between those three days and the three years that Jesus spent living and ministering among the people of Israel, but it's a loose connection at best, and I want to, even though I'm bringing it up, I want to caution you to read too much into numbers and numerology. But just as that lamb's death would have been seen as a, as a genuine sacrifice for the family, imagine the kids in the family as the f- lamb is brought in and live with them for three days. How hard would it be for the kids to then offer up a lamb as a sacrifice? It was a genuine sacrifice for the family. They would have felt the loss. So too do God's people feel the loss of their Messiah as he is hauled off and put to death here. A Messiah who is without blemish, who is unstained by sin. I want to show you how I know this. I'm going to give you just a few passages. At his baptism, at his kind of his consecration into ministry, the father, father pronounced him to be without blemish when he proclaimed from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, Matthew 3.17. Had he been stained with sin at this point, the father could not have said that about him. He was without blemish. Let's also hear from not just the father at his baptism, but those who knew him best. Those who spent years walking with him and learning from him. His own disciples called him holy. In fact, in Peter's sermon, he directly applied Psalm 16 to Jesus when he said, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. He even said that that while David wrote those words, they really were about Jesus. John, the apostle, he will call him righteous, which by definition means without blemish, without sin. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, the one without sin. And if the idea that he is well-pleasing to his Father that he is the Holy One, and that he is Jesus Christ the righteous, if that isn't explicit enough for you, Peter will directly make the connection. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, writing to Christians, Peter says this, You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 
But it wasn't just his friends that said that he was without blemish. Even Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him, in his grief over his sin, grief that did not lead to repentance, he said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But the most striking, I believe, and really this one comes as a shock, three times in today's passage, three times in these verses, Pilate, the perfect representative of the kingdom of this world, Pilate, who is standing in for Caesar, who is essentially the king of the whole world, the entire Roman Empire. Pilate says three times, really, he says, I find no guilt in him. Pilate. Pilate, before whom, as you see this unfolding, before whom, really, the the nations are raging. The peoples are plotting in vain. The kings of the earth have set themselves and the rulers are taking counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed and they're bringing him to Pilate. And Pilate's response is, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. Esteemed pastor James Montgomery Boyce, he was pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He said, it is, one, it is as one uncondemned and in fact declared to be blameless that Christ goes to Calvary. It is as God's blameless lamb that Jesus dies for the sin of the world. And so this morning, Pilate's statements here, the same statement three times, is going to be our outline. But I also want to look closer at, it, at the response to his statement, I find no guilt in him. So point number one, I find no guilt in him. Look at verses 38, 39, and 40. Kind of in the middle of 38, after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. The first response to Jesus or to Pilate's um, declaration, I find no guilt in him, is clearly rejection. The lamb is rejected here. So as chapter 18 comes to a close, you can sense Pilate's growing frustration. He's frustrated with Jesus, but he's especially frustrated that he has to deal with these matters. To him, this whole thing is a big waste of time. This guy's not even guilty. What's your problem? Yet he also knows that he needs to find a way to appease the mob or he will soon have a riot on his hands. But for just a second, go back and look at Pilate's last question to Jesus at the beginning of verse 38. What is truth? You have to see this here not as a deep philosophical question. In our day, this has become a deep philosophical question. What is truth? You have the answer to that, by the way. Jesus. That's the answer. John 14, 6. But for him, this is not a deep philosophical question. This is a flippant, casual reaction to Jesus' claim to bear witness to the truth in the verse, verse 37. 
And the way that he handles Jesus, the way that Pilate handles Jesus tells us two things. First, it tells us that he doesn't care about Jesus' claim to bear witness to the truth, or as he has said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Pilate doesn't care what Jesus has to say. He doesn't care who Jesus is. Second, and we can see that because he does it flippantly, just what is truth, and he walks out. Second, Pilate does not see Jesus as a threat. He doesn't look at Jesus as someone who has any real ability to be his political rival. And this is one of the reasons why he and his soldiers mock Jesus in the way that they do. Why they, why they treat him the way they do throughout this trial. Because not only does Jesus look weak and pathetic to the Romans, but he also thinks that Jesus makes the Jews look weak and pathetic as well. Here's your king. And he is full of disdain for the Jewish people, especially for these leaders. Throughout this trial, Pilate presents Jesus to the people over and over again as the king of the Jews. So do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Maybe this is obvious, but he's using this phrase sarcastically. He's saying this in order to belittle both Jesus and the Jews. He's insulting them. But he also needs to calm down this mob. And so he finds a loophole in the system. Look at verse 39. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want for me to release to you the king of the Jews? Pilate knew that a, a simple um, acquittal of all charges was not going to work. It was not going to fly with this mob. The mob is angry that day. The mob will not be satisfied with justice. They want blood. That's the attitude behind what they cry out in verse 40. Not this man, but Barabbas. Barabbas is a robber. They're angry. They're filled with hatred toward this man. Not this man. Release anybody but this man. This right here, when they say, not this man. This is the epitome of John 1, verse 11. And he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Not this man. In this moment, his own people did not receive him. That's kind of an understatement here. So who do they receive? Who do they receive? Barabbas. John doesn't spend much time on him at all. He just tells us who he was, and the ESV, the English Standard Version, calls him a robber, or maybe a better translation. Some versions will say that he was an insurrectionist. Barabbas was ancient Antifa. That's what he was. Matthew tells us that he was a notorious prisoner. Luke says in Luke chapter 23, verse 19, that he was a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. He started riots and he killed people. Barabbas was the last person Pilate wanted to release. Yet the mob is angry. They are demanding. And Barabbas is the type of savior 
that they're looking for. They're not looking for someone who would remain silent in the face of opposition. They're not looking for someone who would tell his chief disciple to put away your sword when he was taken into custody. They're looking for someone like Barabbas. They wanted someone who would stand up and fight. They wanted someone who was a zealot. Someone who was working to violently overthrow these hated Roman occupiers. Release Barabbas. Give us this man to save us. And so in choosing Barabbas over Jesus, they were choosing salvation by the sword as opposed to salvation by the cross. They were choosing salvation by violent overthrow as opposed to salvation by violent death. J.C. Ryle said they publicly declared that they liked a robber and a murderer better than Christ. What's one more point about Barabbas that we ought not overlook here. That's his name. Bar means son of. Abba means father. His name literally means son of the father. You can't get any more generic. He's John Smith. He's generic John Doe. He's the son of a father. The people of Israel were demanding this son of a father, but they were rejecting the son of the father. I actually think that right here, Barabbas maybe even becomes an even better representative of the kingdom of this world. Because the people of Israel are demanding a generic son of man to be, to be released. And they are clamoring for the crucifixion of the son of God. But don't forget, the mob's rejection of Jesus involved not only, the, not only the will of sinful man, but this is the will of God. Leviticus chapter 16 gives us law concerning the Day of Atonement. Israel's high priest on that day, once a year, Israel's high priest would lay his hands on what was known as the scapegoat. This was one of the things that the high priest would do on the Day of Atonement. He would lay his hands on this goat that would be, come to be called the scapegoat, and he would transfer the guilt of the people for their sin onto the goat. And then he would reject it. He would remove it from the camp. It would be sent off into the wilderness, never to be seen again. The goat, the scapegoat, this is where this term comes from, the scapegoat takes all the blame all the guilt of the people for their sin for the previous year and is led off into the wilderness so that they would never see this goat again. Their sin would be removed for another year. Isaiah chapter 53 tells us that the Messiah will be numbered among transgressors and bear the sins of many. Charles Spurgeon said, Christ, as he stood covered with his people's sins, had more sin laid upon him than that which rested upon Barabbas. Holy, 
harmless and undefiled was this Jesus Christ. But he takes the whole load of his people's guilt upon himself by imputation. And as Jehovah looks upon him, he sees more guilt lying upon the Savior than even upon this atrocious sinner, Barabbas. Yet again, Pilate declares, I find no guilt in him. Point number two. Point one was this, if you're taking notes. Point one was this, I find no guilt in him. Point number two is I find no guilt in him. First point led to rejection of the lamb. The second point leads to his abuse and mockery. Let me read verses one through four of chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. Then they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. And Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. This section, I believe, is where we see Pilate's true morality. He's just declared, even before this, at the end of chapter 18, he has just declared Jesus to be not guilty, and now he's having him flogged or scourged because of political pressure. So with Pilate's first declaration that Jesus was not guilty, the lamb was rejected by the people. The Jews did not want him released. And now with his second declaration, the lamb is abused and mocked. Having been rejected by his own, the lamb of God would now be abused by the ruler of this world. And I'm using that phrase, ruler of this world, deliberately. Three times in John's Gospel, John calls Satan, actually Jesus is speaking, John is quoting Jesus as as calling Satan the ruler of this world. Paul, the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, uses a slightly different term, but he's clearly also referring to Satan when he says this in in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Pilate is a son of disobedience. He's doing the work of the ruler of this world following the prince of the power of the air. And as we saw last week, just just as he stands in as a representative of Caesar, he also stands in as a representative of the prince of the power of the air, of the ruler of this world, Satan. And even when Pilate, the governor, finds no guilt in Jesus, he begins having him flogged anyway. And this flogging or scourging, some versions say, this is a Roman form of punishment that actually actually consisted of three levels of severity. The other gospel accounts tell us that Jesus received the harshest flogging later, closer to the actual crucifixion. So it's likely here that he receives a a lighter um, flogging, beating whipping, especially since Pilate is continuing to proclaim his innocence. It's likely that this is of the milder. But still, don't get this wrong, this is abusive. This is still a Roman soldier with a a leather whip with pieces of bone and and metal fragments in it embedded in the leather, whipping Jesus' back. This is still terrible, but it's just the beginning. 
It's going to continue. And it's going to get much worse for Jesus. And at this point, the soldiers, Pilate's soldiers, join in the abuse and the mockery. Verses 2 and 3. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. They crown him. They adorn him with kingly garments. They pay homage to him. And they slap him. And they punch him. How do we explain this? How do we explain this kind of mockery? I think there's a couple of ways to see this. First is that these soldiers so hate the Jews, they so hold them in contempt that they're really playing up the idea that this, this humiliated, weak man is their king. In other words, they are really mocking and deriding the Jews as much as they are Christ himself. This is Rome doing what Rome does best, lording, it, lording power over their subjects. But the second explanation is this. This is the world hating and rejecting the Messiah. They are beholding with their own eyes. They were beholding the Lord. They were beholding the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They were seeing him with their own eyes. And instead of falling down to worship, they could only abuse and mock and reject. They loved darkness even when they were standing with the light. They loved the darkness. Jesus himself had said back in John chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, he said, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That's what they're doing. They love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. Beloved, darkness is swirling all around us. And it seems to be getting darker, doesn't it? Don't believe the lie that the darkness can be defeated by anything other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. It won't be defeated by a ballot. It won't be defeated by a bullet. It will be defeated only by the light of the world. I'm not saying don't vote. I'm not saying don't shoot your guns. Go ahead and do those things peacefully. But it's not going to save us. Only Jesus will save us. And I want to point out that an ancient statement of the church, the Apostles' Creed, actually helps us to understand these things. There's a line in it that says, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. In bearing this abuse and mockery, Jesus suffers for us in bearing our sins. Ryle again, J.C. Ryle, he said, our Lord was clothed with a robe of shame and contempt that we might be clothed with a spotless garment of righteousness and stand in white robes before the throne of God. Yet even still, Pilate says again in verse 4, 
I find no guilt in him. So now that the lamb has been rejected, now that the lamb has been mocked and abused, he will now be condemned. I find no guilt in him. Verse 5. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When the soldiers' work of mockery and abuse was finished, or at least this portion of it, um, Pilate paraded Jesus before the Jewish people, still dressed as a king, and proclaimed, Behold the man! Jesus at this point is, no doubt, black and blue. He is bruised and bloodied. He has been mocked and disgraced. And really, Pilate is mocking the Jews. This is you, powerless, helpless, and pitiful. Here is the man. Yet it's not them. They love the world. They serve the king of this world, and they're soon going to make that very clear. Down in verse 16, they will say, we have no king but Caesar. But if you're a Christian, behold the man. That's you. That's your sin. But as many as did receive him, who believed in his name, he's taking your sin and shame upon himself right here. But instead of being repulsed by that thought, as we think of a bloodied and bruised Jesus at this point, as we think of him being mocked, wearing that crown of thorns, twisted down onto his head so that the blood's running down into his eye, as we think about those things, instead of being repulsed, we should rejoice because he has given us his righteousness. And he's given us the right to be called children of God. And with these words, behold the man, God's promised seed of woman, the promised son who had crushed the head of the serpent, is presented to God's chosen people. Here he is. Here's the perfect son. Here's the one that you've been waiting for since Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And they yell out, crucify him. Crucify him. I find no guilt in him. He's blameless. But for God's enemies and for God's purposes to be fulfilled, there is more work to do. He must fulfill the law. Not as they say here in verse 7, but rather he must fulfill the law of loving the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving his neighbor as himself. And this is the ultimate expression of that. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus is fulfilling the law. Notice in verse 7, they're pointing to the law. They don't care about the law. We saw that last week. They don't care about the law one bit, but they're pointing to the law as an excuse. But Jesus is fulfilling the law. 
But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is happening right here. Jesus is fulfilling the law of God. He is offering himself as the perfect, spotless sacrifice for our sin. Once for all time for those who would believe in him. And he's establishing the new covenant in his blood that even in these verses is beginning to flow. Jeremiah chapter 31 Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when, they, when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. He takes upon himself the sin and he goes outside the camp. He removes our guilt. Jesus is the scapegoat even. He takes it away. He's the covenant sacrifice. 